immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Turn On The Light. Um, I am your host, Louise Cordry. Uh, I hope you've all been well um, and staying safe and, uh, you know, staying sane as well, importantly, since last time I spoke to you. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll jump straight in then. Um, at the top of every episode, I share some good news stories uh, that I've heard in the nat- from the natural world, conservation-wise, environmental-wise, um, in the past couple of weeks. And then I move on to talk about my species in the spotlight, um, which will be a conservation success story from around the world. So without further ado, let's crack into it. Anyone who, who knows me or have listened to previous podcast episodes knows that I have a massive soft spot for Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust and Jersey Zoo, and especially the IIs, who I studied there for my undergrad dissertation. IIs are just magnificent creatures. Wonderful nocturnal species of lemur, totally unique in the way that they look. If anybody doesn't know what they look like, I recommend that you Google it immediately. I think that they're just amazingly beautiful and wonderfully cute. Some people would say ugly cute, Others would say just ugly, <laughs> but no, they're wonderful creatures and they're so unique um, in the in the way that they they live and the way that they forage um, for grubs within trees. Um, so they have this really skeletal long middle finger on a ball and socket joint that just tappy tap 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 taps away at tree branches um, and trunks and he listens for those hollows um, within the trees um, and then they use their massive continuously growing in size of teeth to gnaw away um at the bark to get into the nice juicy grubs um and it's just incredible that they're able to do this um and it's also incredible that they can actually extrapolate out in their minds like a mind map of these little crevices within trees um with this percussive foraging that they do so incredibly unique species um and just yeah have an absolute soft spot in my heart um and they interesting fun fact about them they have the highest degree of encephalization um in lima species which means that their brain size compared to their body size is um comparable so like their their brain is big compared to their body size basically (laughs) um and yeah that's what makes them super smart little dudes um So yes, I had the pleasure of studying these guys um, and their behaviour in captivity over at Jersey Zoo. Um, So I'm incredibly excited to share with you all the story of baby Mafali. She was born at Jersey Zoo on the 15th of May, um, but the zoo have only just released the news on the 30th of June. A little sad start to the tale. Um, Unfortunately, Mafali's mother, Zanvi, rejected her new baby. Um, Zanvi previously resided at Bristol Zoo. Um, where two of her previous offspring were also hand-reared. Um, so even though it's unfortunate that this happened, Jersey Zoo staff were prepared for this eventuality that she might reject this one as well. Um, so keepers were there on hand to intervene and are hand-rearing Mefali. Um And Mefali wonderfully means um, playful and to rejoice in Malagasy. Um, as in case people didn't know, lemurs are endemic to the island of Madagascar. It's the only place that you will find them. Um, so it's lovely that they named her um, in a little Malagasy word there. Um, so she's doing super well. Um, she's trebled her 65 kilogram birth weight. Um, she had quite a low birth weight to begin with. So that's really cool. Really amazing that she's doing so well. Um, now you might sort of say, like, you know, why are you still allowing Zanvi to breed if she's just going to reject her baby as well? As with all lemur species, sadly, um, IIs are endangered, um, so it's still very important for her to breed. And a fun fact about Zanvi, the mother, is that she's the daughter of Patrice. Um, and Patrice was a wild-born II brought back to Jersey uh, Zoo by Gerald Durrell. Um, of course, this was sort of different times where Gerald Durrell would go out and, and capture specimens from, from the wild and bring them back to the zoo. Um yeah i mean obviously that's a debate for another time um but the journey of of doing that is actually described in his book the i and i which 
is a wonderful little book um if anybody does get the chance to, to read that um it's 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 interesting um and yeah it's it's a good read um sort of no matter what your what your opinion um on that so Yes, Patrice is a wild caught II, um, and he is one of the guys who I had the pleasure of studying and sitting for hours in the dark with for my undergraduate dissertation. So, um, yeah, it's really cool to have a little sort of hark back to hearing about um, him and his legacy and, and the II's lives there at Jersey Zoo. Um, and Patrice is still there. He's still still living his little life at Jersey. So that's awesome. Um and I mentioned earlier there about percussive foraging in IIs. Um, Baby Mafali is actually beginning to tap things in her little box. Um, so she's learning very quickly and she's growing very fast, um, which is incredible. Uh, so she is one of two IIs that were born in 2020 this year at Jersey Zoo. Um, the other one was a little male. Um, and as I said, so important for their captive breeding. Um, they're only found in Madagascar, um, along with about a, just over 100 other species of lemurs. Um, and they are, lemurs as a whole, are actually considered the most threatened group of mammals on Earth. Um, so lemur births within captive breeding are always fantastic pieces of news. Um, which leads me on to another lemur birth. <laughs> um this is with the Lima Conservation Foundation, who are over in the States. Um, so they also had a very important birth this year on the 25th of May. Um, and this was a little baby critically endangered red ruffed lemur. Red ruffed lemurs are absolutely gorgeous. Um, again, Google, if you don't know what they look like, there's no debate here on ugly, cute or cute. They are just plain cute. <laughs> um, and as the name suggests, they are red in colour with this big puffy ruff around their necks. Um... Now, red ruffed lemurs are actually unique in that the females give birth to litters rather than an individual. Um, so it's up to six infants. Um, and what they do, rather than cling to their mother, they make a nest where the youngsters can snuggle up until they're big enough to move around independently. Um, and this baby also shares some similarities with Mafali there. Um, that he weighed in at a low birth weight of 63 kilograms. Um, so she should should be weighing around 100 to 125 grams. Sorry, I just said kilograms there, didn't I? No, they shouldn't weigh 63 kilograms, a baby lemur. Jesus. <laughs> um, 63 grams was his birth weight. Um, yeah, and they should be a hun around 100 to 125 grams. Um, so he was a little on the, on the small side as well. But he is actually now eight times his birth weight in just six weeks. Um, so yay, amazing little pieces of news there, super cute stuff, um, and I will put links in the show notes to both news stories with lovely cutie patootie images and videos for you all to take a look at there. So that's my two baby news stories um, for this uh, issue, and I didn't want to take up two more of your time, but I also had to just pop in here as well about um, bison uh, going to be released into England again. Wild bison, how exciting is that? So another sort of reintroduction program um, in England. There, um, I think a small herd going to be released um, into Kent. Three individuals, I believe. Um, I'll also put a link to that story in the show notes for you as well. So yeah, amazing, exciting stuff happening all all over the place, which is wonderful. Okay, let's now move on and let me take you back to the island of Mauritius. Now, this colourful wonderbird is the only living native parrot of the Mascarene Islands. You guessed it, the species in the spotlight this week is the Echo Parakeet. Okay, so the Echo Parakeet, Siticula echus, or aka the Mauritius Parakeet. This species of parrot is endemic to the Mascarene Islands and, as just mentioned, uh, the only living parrot left on Mauritius. Um, there used to be another subspecies on the island of Reunion called the Reunion Parakeet, fittingly enough, but this is uh, sadly extinct. Um, but the Echo Parakeet was saved, so let's focus on that, yes. Um, so the echo parakeet is quite a small parrot at 34 to 42 centimetres tall 
weighing around 160 to 190 grams with a wingspan of 49 to 54 centimeters. Now these little guys are very well camouflaged for life in the forest, being totally bright green. Uh, the female tends to be a bit darker than the male. And there's a couple, there's a few differences between the males and the females. Um, both have two collars on the neck, um, but the males have one black collar and one pink, and the female has one green collar and one indistinct black collar. Also, the upper bill of the males is red, and the upper bills of the females is black. So quite easy to tell males or females apart. Um, and as so many birds within the natural wildlife kingdom do, they display sexual dimorphism. Um, and in case people aren't aware of exactly what that means, that is just where, where the two sexes of the same species exhibit different characteristics beyond the differences in sexual organs. Um, and a really good example of that is the peacock. Um, the males obviously strutting around, showing off their big old feathers, uh, doing their thing, being all pretty and fabulous. Um, and the females, the, they're just a bit, the peahens are a bit brown and drab, bless them. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically sexual dimorphism. Um, echo parakeets are herbivorous, eating fruits, flowers, leaves, buds and bark. And they nest in the cavities of emergent endemic trees. Um, just to break those bits down in the sentence there, um, emergent is just, you know, as it sounds, the emerging trees, the ones that emerge above the canopy. Um, so the very tallest trees. Um, endemic trees, the, the, the native trees to Mauritius are only found there on Mauritius. Um, and they also forage within the canopy as well. So they are pretty much completely arboreal um, and they rarely descend to the forest floor. Now this is a factor that may have posed one of the problems for these birds. As man populated the island and chopped down trees and such and developed the land for, for other things, the forest declined from full native vegetation cover to less than 1.5% of good quality forest cover today. Now this habitat loss was coupled with the introduction of alien feral predators, uh, such as cats, rats, monkeys, mongoose, pigs, etc., um, which we've touched on before um, and posed a threat um, to the survival of the parakeet um, as a form of prey. Um, and then introduced competitors also posed issues for the parakeet um, in competition for food and for nesting sites um, from birds such as the common miner and ring-necked parakeets. So all of these factors grouped together led to devastating declines in the numbers of wild echo parakeets. And as we know from prior stories, as Mauritius was colonised by by man in sort of the 1700s, it was, um, how shall we say, ruined by us. Um, fauna was seen as food, you know, land was cleared, as I said, for settlements, for development. Um, and small islands obviously face massive issues when you introduce predators or you introduce disease um, or you take away what small habitat there is. Um, so all of these things together... Main meant that the echo parakeet became the world's rarest parrot. And in the late 1970s, there were less than 20 birds known in the wild um, in the region of the Black River Gorges, um, which you may remember that region from the story of the pink pigeon. And of these remaining individuals, only three were female. Dire straits, indeed. Okay, that's enough dire straits. So, enter Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, Carl Jones and the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. These big ballers are known from such famous stories as saving the Mauritius kestrel and bringing back the pink pigeon. Professor Carl Jones is a force of nature in this arena, the founder of the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, or MWF, um, and scientific, uh, scientific director of... MWF, and also the chief scientist at Doral Wildlife Conservation Trust. So these echo parakeets were bloody lucky that this guy was on their side. He knows his shit, he knows what he's doing, he's done it before, he can do it again. So a captive breeding program was set up for the echo parakeet, um, firstly in 1975 by MWF and intensified in 1987. 
techniques for the captive breeding and the captive management of the parakeets was really only fully mastered in the 1990s. Um, prior to this, nesting success was, was low um, and they had to look at factors why um, and rectify this. So after this sort of reinvention of the programme, um, the number of birds produced from captive pairs significantly increased. Yay! And by 1997, enough birds were born and thriving in captivity to trial a release of three birds in an area in Mauritius called the Machabe Forest. And it was a success! And continuing through the 90s and the noughties, the echo parakeet was one of the most intensively managed birds in the world. So this intensive management includes things such as releases of captive bred individuals, nest improvement, artificial nest provision, supplementary feeding, uh, egg and chick rescue, predator and competition control, etc, etc, etc. The list goes on. These guys were really, really intensively managed by the people over there at the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation and given the best possible chance that they could to climb their way out of the pit that is extinction. So the techniques used for the captive breeding and the management of these birds were very much the same as the successful techniques used by Carl Jones in the saving of the kestrel and the pink pigeon. Um, so he'd, you know, developed these techniques and they were shown to be successful in these other species. So why not try it with another one? Um, and that's what happened. So this included, let's talk about a little bit about the breeding techers that was used there. So frequent nest inspection and if necessary, the rescue of clutches and nestlings. So this allowed problems such as low weight gain in young to be detected early and acted upon swiftly. Um, where the problem could not be solved in situ, in the nest, in its original place, they would be removed for incubation and hand-rearing in captivity. Um, other such things, techniques that were employed were fostering of eggs and nestlings. So that spread the burden of rearing nestlings between breeding groups um, to other parakeets. Uh, I know before we've spoken about cross-fostering, where different species would um, look after the eggs and the nestlings, but this was just between the same species, so between other parakeets, just to spread that burden between um, all of them. Um, early egg removal to circumvent embryo death due to poor incubation. So, bless them. This would happen when a female has a bit of a history of malincubation leading to the embryos not developing, not surviving. Um, so, this was, you know, a problem that was detected early and the eggs were removed um, to be incubated elsewhere by man. Um, and they would go on to, to hatch and to thrive. Um, and also they used the technique of downsizing clutches um, for birds to perhaps a single egg, again, for that sort of spread of the burden. Management techniques that were used um, in the population's as they were existing either either captively um, or sort of semi-captively sort of flying around um, or out in the wild also. So this included rodent control, which is sort of self-explanatory, um, controlled the rodents getting to the nests and prevented um, young and eggs being killed and stolen by the rodents. Um, management of nest cavities. Um, so they did this by providing shaved wood nest linings um, and these would be treated with fungicides and insecticides um, once the eggs hatched, once there were nestlings in there to minimise the risk of fungal or insect infections or infestations. Uh, supplementary feeding was also used. Um, so we definitely spoke about this um, with the pink pigeons as well so food is deliberately provided to these guys of like really nutritious food to really help them along in their journey and to really really thrive um they the, this food is provided near where their active nest sites are um, and the feeders that are used exclude other species from eating that food um which is nice it's all theirs um other things that they did within the population to really really manage them and to make sure that they had the best chance um, was the capture and the ringing of adult parakeets which obviously allows for long-term monitoring um, and disease and dna sampling um, so these birds were routinely screened for diseases and parasites um, again to make sure that they are the healthiest that they could possibly be um, and then obviously there's the big daddy 
um, the releases of captively bred individuals. Um, now, I've touched before in a good news story, I think last episode, on soft releases. And I was talking about pangolins there. Um, now, this breeding program also employed the technique of soft releases, um, actually what they call ultra soft releases. Um, so this is a technique that's employed when an animal would be particularly sensitive or particularly prone to stress. So you have to be really, really careful about moving them from an environment that they're familiar with and that they know to something that is the wild and the best place for them, um, but something that could cause a lot of um, stress within an individual. So they did these ultra soft releases by holding the birds in an aviary for around about a fortnight, um, so on average. Now, to begin with, the birds were released from this aviary near dusk, so they didn't really move very far immediately. Um, they stayed sort of in the close vicinity. And then they were captured the next morning, placed back in the aviary and given food. And these release times became progressively earlier and earlier in the day. Um, and once the birds were seen to be established within that area and utilising the wild foods out there in the daytime, they were not recaught. So that was that. Off they went to live their lives. A very um, careful and slow process of, of reintroducing them into a wild area. Now disaster almost struck in the early 2000s when during an attempted release a highly virulent introduced disease, cytosine beak and feather disease was discovered. Now to mitigate the effects of this, management was instantly reduced to avoid the spread. Now that does sound familiar doesn't it? They distanced themselves from the echo parakeets. You might say they were socially distant from the echo parakeets um, for a while to stop the, the spread of this highly virulent disease. Um, very topical. Um, and an organisation here called Wildlife Vets International supported the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation um, for around 20 years um, and they were instrumental in getting them through this disease period. And thankfully, despite the fact that there was heavy chick and infant mortalities at this time, it did not prevent the increase of the species as a whole. Woohoo! So, what is that increase, I hear you cry? Well, check it out. So, in 2007, they were downlisted from critically endangered to endangered. And now, in 2019, in an update to the IUCN Red List, they moved again from endangered to vulnerable. With nearly 800 birds in the wild, and their population trend, importantly, is increasing. That means it's going up. Those numbers are going up, baby. So, from less than 20 individuals in the 1970s, they went through this whole intensive management process with all of these amazing people around them, cheering them on and working hard for their success, to now in, the, in 2019, where there was nearly 800 birds in the wild, going through th from three categories on the IUCN Red List, from critically endangered to endangered to now vulnerable, which is incredible. Particularly considering that the echo parakeet is one of just nine surviving endemic Mauritian birds. Full stop. And this is where I want to take just a moment to give Professor Carl Jones some more love. He has led not one, not two, not three, not four successful bird restoration projects, but five successful bird restoration projects in the Mascarene Islands, where the starting populations have numbered less than 12 in most of those situations. So his hard work with the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation and obviously support from many other organisations and passionate individuals, Mauritius has averted more bird extinctions than any other country in the world. Amazing for such a small island to have achieved so much. Um, and again, I'll plug um, the little doco or, well, dramatisation of Carl Jones um, and his journey with the Mauritius Kestrel. There's a show on Sky Atlantic called The Birdman. Um, and yeah, go and have a watch of that because that just, it's heartwarming and it's lovely to watch. Um, so if you get the time, please do check that out. Um, but of course, successes like these aren't built in a day or even a decade. 
Um, it took years to establish these programs and it was far from straightforward, particularly where the breeding of these birds and their diet and their management was con concerned. And obviously they had an overhaul of these techniques um, when the project had already been running for years and years and years, realising it wasn't as effective as it, as it could be. So consistent work and consistent research and updates and discoveries going into um, bringing this bird back from the edge of extinction. Obviously, these, pro these kind of programs involved hundreds of biologists and organisations, um, such as a few that I'll list here, of course, the Mauritius Wildlife Foundation and Mauritius National Parks and Conservation Service and Forestry Service. Uh, Chester Zoo has also had a hand um, in this recovery programme. Of course, Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, the World Parrot Trust, ZSL, Zoological Society of London, Reading University, the University of East Anglia, to name a few. I could go on. Um, so yeah, it, it just goes to show that it takes an army for these things to happen. But the amazing positive thing to take away from that is these armies exist. There are so many people and so many organisations out there who are wanting the lives of these animals to be protected and for them to thrive, which is heartwarming and encouraging. And I love finding out about stories like this and, and sharing them with you. So the echo parakeet is certainly a model for the conservation of other rare parrots around the world. Dedication plus hard work plus commitment from people just like you who are listening, maybe, makes these things happen. Now it's time for your fun facts. Fun fact number one. Nests occur at least 10 metres above the ground. 10 metres. Mm -mm. Not for me, that one. No, thank you. Fun fact number two. The wild parakeets actually learn how to use the man-made nest boxes put up by people from released individuals. How amazing is that? Fun fact number three. They will display mobbing behaviour to noisily scold animals that they perceive as a threat. And this includes Mauritius kestrels. So they will surround the poor kestrel, flying all around them and landing in surrounding trees emitting harsh alarm calls. Fun fact number four. The reason for their name is the sound of their call, which goes a little something like this. Awesome. And that's your fun facts on the Echo Parakeet. Now, it is time to go from one island dweller to another island dweller. Today I have the pleasure of introducing Bianca Young, aka Binky. She is a passionate and talented environmental scientist with a bachelor's in environmental studies and a master's in integrated climate system sciences. She has studied the intricate systems of how our ecosystems interact and their responses to climate change and works to implement methods of how we can combat this. She is currently working as an environmental officer in her hometown of Montego Bay, Jamaica, which includes the management of two marine protected areas. Let's talk to her about what this work involves and her other adventures in the natural world. Okay, so hi Vinky and welcome to Turn on the Light. Um, how's it going? Um, everything is great. I can't complain. I mean... There's a lot going on, but yeah. I am happy and I'm healthy, so nothing to complain about. Good to hear. Awesome. Okay, so um, from the information you gave me sort of pre-interview, um, I know that you're currently working with Sandals Foundation as an environmental officer. Um, I wondered if you could just sort of give us a rough idea of, of what that would usually look like day to day, a day in the life of Binky, if you like. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I am responsible for sort of overseeing the full project life cycle of all of our environmental um, projects. Um, and that includes, for instance, the two marine sanctuaries in Jamaica, um, a coral restoration project in St. Lucia, um, an outdoor flight classroom in St. in um, Antigua. Um, and we work in seven different countries in the Caribbean, so quite a few different projects wow, across yeah. the region. And so from start to finish, that could include um, researching a project or a project partner, reviewing a, a, a submission, a, a project proposal, 
um, monitoring and evaluating the projects that we have on board, uh, communicating with the partners, and then sort of administrative things, you know, ensuring that the funds are, get transferred, um, writing up my own internal reports and, and, and sort of keeping a good, you know, handle on everything and making sure that we are sort of meeting our, our, our goals, whether it be, mm -hmm. you know, our environmental goals or, you know, financial goals and so on. So yeah, yeah any, any given day I could be, you know, doing something on the computer, right, making sure that our contracts are up to date or traveling, which is one of the more exciting parts for me. Yeah, I was about to ask, so do you sort of spread your time between those seven countries where those projects are? Um, I generally get to travel when we have a new project mm -hmm. um, in an island. So existing projects, it's pretty much remotely, you know, speaking with the partners and Skype calls and, and so on. But when we have a new project going on, especially if it's a new partner who we haven't worked with before, then a lot of the times I do get to go over, meet them in person, mm -hmm. see what's, you know, what they have going on for them physically there, you know, whatever the project may be, whether mm -hmm. it's a... Uh, you know, a, a facility or, you know, a, a curriculum program or something like that. And what do, what do your partners look like? What sort of organisations would, would you partner with on projects? Uh, so we partner with some environmental conservation organisations. Um, one of the examples I'll give would be sort of Clare Caribbean. They work um, in the Eastern Caribbean, so St. Lucia, I believe they work in Grenada, some of the other small islands, and mm -hmm. they do a lot of conservation work. They do have put together a lot of um, coral nurseries and paired that with community building and um, education programs. Um, in Antigua, we are working with um, environmental awareness group of Antigua, and they are really more focused on education. Mm -hmm. So they have an outdoor classroom program, and they also, I think, work when, you know, they're in their other work, um, have sort of outdoor experiences for, for persons to, in a more educational um, uh, mindset. Um, yeah, we've, we do execute some projects on our own. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we have partnered with um, UN Environment and some nice. of the local partners in Jamaica and, and done a waste, man waste, waste management project here yeah. in Jamaica so it really does vary mm -hmm. um, quite a few different types of, of organizations definitely and I suppose the, the waste management is a bit a bit more involved than, than putting up bins in the in the local village in Madagascar <laughs> a little bit more <laughs> yeah I mean, we, we chose a pretty basic concept um, but we have been able to see the results I think because now there's actually a system in place you know from the from the you know, from the municipality and mm -hmm. actually having a recycling program and a lot of the, the troubles that we have in the Caribbean have to do with the fact that we don't actually have the, the facilities or the, the, mm -hmm. the, the mechanisms in place. So yeah, you can put a bin in as much as you <laughs> want, but if there's nowhere for the waste to go, then mm -hmm. it all ends up in one place yeah. or in the environment. Yeah. So is that sort of touching on um, sort of a few of the problems that, that you're facing in the region? Is that sort of one of the main things, like having the infrastructure there to deal with things? Um, yeah, I don't know if you could sort of take us through a little bit of what you're, what you're coming up against, like what you're combating. Definitely. Um, for waste management, which I'd say is definitely a, a major concern in the Caribbean, but of course globally as well, that would be one of the main things, that there isn't... Uh, a system in many other islands where, for instance, waste can be separated and mm. and um, diverted from the landfills. And because you're living in a small island, you have to remember that space is yeah. an issue. So, you know, one landfill, which you hope is going to last you for quite a few years, is they're filling up at, at you know, extremely high rates. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the question is, well, when, where do we find the next you know, space to find another landfill, or better yet, how can we actually start to divert waste and, and have people look at how they deal with waste a lot differently than they do now. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And um, you touched a little bit there on like having to sort of evaluate and monitor things. And I, I work in um, in a charity in the fundraising department at the moment, and sort of like discussing our impact is a is a massive thing, and like proving it sort of with numbers and stuff. Um, so. Are you sort of seeing some really cool stuff from the projects that you're doing? Are you seeing those changes happening? 
Um, it's great to be able to see some of the positive mm-hmm. changes, and, and definitely, yes, we're seeing them. I mean, um, for instance, we work with turtle conservation, yeah. um, and that is one of the really rewarding things. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen a, a nest of hatchlings go out, um, you know, walk across the beach and, and, and go out in the sea, that's it's really amazing. Um, so with with rigorous monitoring and with our project partners actually keeping records of what they're seeing year to year and the lane mm-hmm. patterns and and actually seeing successes in rehabilitating the beaches and also monitoring against poaching mm-hmm. um, we've definitely been able to see you know some of the great um benefits from programs like that oh awesome you spoke a little bit about turtles there i'm guessing sort of in island habitats that obviously the marine and beach environments are, are super super important um and I know so when I first met you, you were you were all about the marine side of things. Um, is that still sort of your big love? Is that where your heart it's truly lies? Still where yeah. my heart is. And um, now that I'm back home again, um, I've really just it has reignited in me as well. Um, you know, living on the coast and and working on the coast and and remembering what my childhood was like you know where yeah. you know I, I lived pretty much on the beach and and been able to enjoy that for for most of my life so it definitely is very very important um the the conflict there is tourism development mm-hmm. and the balance that we have to make um it is one that we have to make a lot of the islands in the caribbean rely majority mm-hmm. on tourism a massive um, source of revenue Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's how we survive. Um, Jamaica is a little bit different than some of the others because we're bigger. We have some other industries, but think of the smaller islands mm-hmm. where that's pretty much it. It's it's about people coming in and enjoying that coastal space. And the coastal space is extremely vulnerable, um, not just because of development, but also because of climate change mm-hmm. and some of the other um, uh, environmental issues that we have going on. So. Um, I, I don't think I could ever really take my focus off of that mm-hmm. while I'm here. Um, and luckily for me, the foundation is also very passionate about that. And naturally, so we are the this, the um, charitable arm of Sandals Resorts mm-hmm. International, um, who operates um, quite a few resorts across the Caribbean in, in those seven islands. Um, and the mission of the, the foundation is to impact lives and when it comes to the environmental portfolio to put a special focus on on the marine environment yeah talking a little bit about tourism there that sort of leads me on to the inevitable question that i've asked most of my interviewees this year um so how is the current world situation affecting your work and and the foundation um how is covid19 impacting you guys right well as it relates to the projects we've had to put many of them, most of them, I should say, on hold or postpone them. Um, a good amount of pretty much all of the, the education programs because mm-hmm. those work with schools, they work with students. And so naturally with school being either suspended or um, gone remote, then we, we found that especially for outdoor learning or learning about the environment, we definitely need to have you know, physical presence. So we put a lot of those on hold and postpone them maybe till the start of the year, next year. Mm-hmm. Um, a few of the projects that we had sort of coming to a close have kept going and, and are doing well. Um, the marine sanctuaries can't stop. They're <laughs> essential. Yeah. They are essential work, um, which is one thing I thought we were going to have to fight that, but the government was like, yeah, yeah, you guys are essential. I'm like, yay. <laughs> um, so um, we have had to, of course, continue our patrols and, and the wardens are, are really, really fantastic in, in this time when it's been very, very stressful on, on everybody Amazing. to continue that work. Yeah. Um, so that's really has been the impact on 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 the projects. Um, obviously, tourism has come to a standstill, mm. essentially. We, we've reopened here in Jamaica, so we're starting to see um, people coming in, but um, of course it was slow for quite a while, mm-hmm. or non-existent for quite a while, because we completely shut the borders totally. Um, so in that sense, it has affected our um, our fundraising, I suppose, because mm-hmm. a lot of our guests are the ones who are actually donating um, to yeah. the foundation. Um, 
but with our projects on hold we're sort of just like staying quiet in our corner and just waiting yeah. until we can start impacting lives again and um really working to to get back to mm-hmm. that level yeah whether and then it, yeah yeah and then personally it has been it's been such sort of a strange it's been very strange we, we transitioned to work from home mm. um then reduce workload and then now I'm pretty much like in the status of the projects, like I'm on hold. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where I am right now. Like, what are you doing? Well, I'm on hold. So yeah. that's, that's where we are. Sort of in limbo, that kind of feeling of, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm neither here nor there. Yeah, um, exactly. So you've just, so Jamaica's just opened their borders again. This, uh, just out of my own curiosity, um, is there sort of restrictions on who you'll let into the country? Like from what country? Like, i.e. America, will you let Americans in or? <laughs> market and the British market mm-hmm. are our biggest customers and yeah. we're open to everybody um, which is a little controversial to some mm-hmm. some people um, but that's where that's where yeah. most of our people come mm-hmm. from um, we are essentially fully open um, not as many flights coming in but um, what we what the government has done is to They've sort of designated a, uh, I don't remember what they're calling it, but they're calling it, maybe they're calling it the COVID corridor or mm. COVID free corridor. I'm not trying <laughs> to remember. Some sort of geographic um, limitations on where people can go. Okay. Um, so this is also our returning residents as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're living in, or basically the North Coast is, is open um, of the island. Um, Hard to police that, but I think they're working with an app that's um, where you have to check in and, and that monitors your location. Mm-hmm. Uh, masks are mandatory, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody who comes in from the airport is tested. And then, well, what happens after they get yeah. tested? And they, if they're positive, we have had some positive cases. Um, and we're sort of right now in the mix of what's supposed to happen so i can't really say much about that but the persons who have tested negatively or tested negative they're in their hotels i think they're enjoying the beach the weather is hot sunny we're experiencing some hazy skies because of the saharan dust okay i don't know if you've been hearing about that every year we have the saharan dust coming over Mm -hmm. um and we sort of experience in this time period just some haziness in the sky you know it's just but this year i mean it blanketed higher <laughs> i mean people were having physical reactions to it oh really over to stay inside yeah it really was massive this year it's like another thing on oh, top my, yeah. Of going on already. yeah it's like it looked yeah. like the apocalypse out there <laughs> yeah it's serious i mean I, I look out i live on the coast and you know, on one side, you know, beach and whatever, and the other side, there's there's mountains, there's a hillside. Mm-hmm. Could not see the hillside. Oh, wow. That is hazy. <laughs> so, today, not so bad, but last week it was like I've never seen in my life. The world is going mad, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it sounds like there's a handle on it, and, and you mentioned apps there, which I think apps and technology are having a bit of a boom this year, if nobody else is. <laughs> um, have you been able to, like, take any of the educational bits and pieces online um or is that something that definitely needs like as you say the physical presence um of you guys to be there you mean in terms of our projects yeah in terms of the educational sort of outreach um yes and no um we've sort of had to um we've had to we're still we're yeah Yes and no, because for instance, let's say we have a project with a partner in Barbados, a new new project, new mm-hmm. partner, and because it hadn't really gotten off the ground, we were thinking postponing is best, but one of the components, for instance, was um, creating an environmental comic, oh, cool. and because it's something that was created digitally, you know, mm-hmm. that before printing, the thought was, okay, well, just do away with the printing and, and, and let's see if we can get it done online, but I think there's a little bit of concern was like you know if there's activities in there isn't it you know nicer to have it be a physical thing and then if it's created to also sort of be a learning tool that's done with somebody monitoring it and you know mm-hmm. with a classroom then and with a group then 
is it really going to be as beneficial or as impactful if somebody, a student is just at home, mm-hmm. you know, sort of alone or over the computer doing it rather than, you yeah. know, sort of more in an interactive environment. So it has sort of been a balance of that. And I think by and large, we're mostly saying, let's wait and see if we can start back in the classrooms and so on mm-hmm. um, in in January next year, then we'll prefer that. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. My sister works in a in a school and she was saying it's so hard. They're starting to go back now. And she said it's so hard to work with the kids and but they have to work with things that can be wiped down with disinfectant and they can't take their work home with them. And it all just seems a bit pointless at the moment to yeah. sort of go back into yeah. that environment. Um, yeah. which is, yeah, it's a crazy, crazy time. Um, but but sort I of, imagine it has been really tough. Yeah. Doing yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're sort of primary school kids, so they're sort of five and six years old, so they're finding it tough as well, not really having a concept of why can't I go near my friend Johnny over there or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit mad. Um, but sort of sticking on that theme of education and, and sort of going back to the past when you could interact with people and, and sort of be around people. Um, a lot of what you've done is raising awareness and, and education about the environment. Um, I wanted to ask you if you have like a standout moment in your memory where you were talking to someone about something or trying to influence someone's opinions on something and there was that moment where someone just suddenly got it, like why the environment's important and why we should work to save it. If you had a eureka moment like that. Yeah, I think my most recent sort of interaction directly with with the community has been through that waste management project that I mentioned. And funny enough, I thought that one of our biggest challenges was going to be, you know, getting the buy-in from the community. Mm -hmm. Um, And surprisingly, it wasn't. I think the problem has reached such a, a glaring point that... I mean, you can't walk down the street without there just being garbage all over, and mm. it's, you can't you can't ignore it. And so, while we had such a great response to that, there were there were sort of it's not really about an environmental concept or you know a scientific concept, but the idea that we, meaning myself and my organization that I represent, that we actually do care, mm. um, that we're not you know we're not just doing it for show um, and that these things are real and that workshop that you're going to sign up for is actually going to happen and um, you know having that that buy-in or like the the support and and the sort of like well now we believe you because we've seen you mm. in action I think that has been sort of a standout a standout thing for me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so weird, isn't it? When you make something tangible for people, like something they can actually see and touch, then, then it's, it's there, it's right in front of their eyes and they, they get it. And as you say, you get that buy-in from people, which is so important <laughs> and so difficult exactly. to, to get. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, um, to ask you about one of your previous roles um, as well during our time together um, as an environmental health and safety manager in St. Lucia. Um, you mentioned to me that you coordinated the emergency response program, which included disaster preparedness. Um, was that in response to natural disasters? Um, it did include natural mm-hmm. disasters. That was, of course, one of the major components. Um, the other things would be more like sort of incident management mm-hmm. in terms of somebody were to get injured or if, you know, there was some sort of, um, you know, break in, that kind of a thing. But the major thing is our natural disasters mm-hmm. and the most important being hurricanes, um, tropical storms and any associated, you know, flooding, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and naturally that's because of the environment that we live in and, and the fact that we have a quite active hurricane season every year. Um, and unfortunately increasingly strong storms. And uh, um, I mean, it's a reality that when you live in the Caribbean, you, you sort of naturally prepare for it mentally at least that you know hey it's hurricane season start to stock up that kind of a thing um but when it comes to an environment where you have say foreigners and guests involved Mm -hmm. and safety and of of your workers and your teams at the same time that you're trying to you know deliver your your service um it definitely takes a a team effort to to make sure that Mm -hmm. everybody is safe yeah um and obviously as you're saying it's sort of things are getting a bit crazy and I'm sure climate change contributes to those weather systems becoming so extreme um 
I wondered if you are able to sort of talk to us a little bit about why conservation of tropical habitats is so important for disaster management. Um, so like mangroves, for example, that protect coastlines. Yeah, um, I mean, there's several different components of the coastal ecosystem that play a part in in protecting our coastlines. Um, the coral reefs, very, very important because they pretty much act as barriers mm. to wave action. Um, and that's going to be something that's associated with, with heavy storms that are coming mm. in. A natural um, breakwater sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. And then you have your next level of defense being the mangroves. Um, that are also going to be sort of absorbing that wave action and reducing the amount of, of sort of water and, 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 and the sea that's coming in when, when you have these events, um, as well as the extreme winds, the high winds and, and the, the, um, the intensity there um, when you have those mangroves acting as a sort of barrier to the other, whatever you have going on there on the coastline. And I mean... You see, have you ever seen that video online where there's a model of a, a coast? Um, yes. There's one without yeah. the, the mangroves and one with the mm-hmm. mangroves, and you you pretty much get a, a instant demonstration of how important they are. And you know, for some, they're it's just a bush, it's just a tree, <laughs> but the impact is is huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Absolutely, and I think. Just from sort of us talking for for a few minutes here, your 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 passion and knowledge of the world that you're working in and, and the world around us is clear. Um, but I wanted to ask you what originally led you down um, the path of the degrees that you've done in environmental climate sciences. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I put a lot of it on my parents, who mm-hmm. were able to give me a lifestyle where. I was able to be outside and enjoy it and go to the beach. I learned to swim when I was two. Um, That's not a reality for a lot of people Mm -hmm. in the Caribbean, despite the fact that we are surrounded by water. You'd be surprised at how many people can't swim. Uh Um, And well, there's a whole other discussion about why that is and, and so on. But that's the reality that a lot of persons can't swim. And though they may enjoy the beach, Mm -hmm. it's, it pretty much stops there. That's that's where we go. That's what we do. Um, so anybody who sort of goes beyond that is either in fishing, mm-hmm. which is very important, or is like me um, and is snorkeling and diving and, and getting into to to it. And um, I think some of that has developed with tourism and and scuba diving and and actually having other peer persons who are really interested in what we have to offer in the underworld underwater world. Um, developing the fact that you know we start to sort of see it as a more important um, ecosystem, but yeah, for me that was it. I, I I think there was a summer when I decided not to work for whatever reason. My mother was like, no, "That's not going to fly." <laughs> so I said, "Okay, well, can I just find if I find something to do, will you just you know let it be?" And she said, "Yeah, find it, and we'll get to it." And then I told her scuba diving, and she was like, "Oh my god, no." <laughs> she made it happen for me she got me lessons and um that was pretty much it for me after that i mean i grew up where we spent the weekends going bird watching um we went we spent the weekends picnicking or you know taking a drive Mm -hmm. into the country um you know where either to go and see my grandparents on the other side of the island or just to go and walk somewhere and go to the river and and so that was my reality. I mean, a lot of people do get to enjoy that because it's right here. But I also was able to take it to the next level of like learning about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was there was that. I had that education. Not not to say others don't, but I had it at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And I don't I don't I don't want to put a downer on anything, but um, how how has sort of the landscape and, and the wildlife you saw as a child and a young person, how has that been impacted sort of through environmental degradation or climate change as, as you've grown, or has it, has it sort of changed before your eyes? Um, the, I guess the most drastic change for me that I can remember in terms of, you know, what I saw as mm-hmm. a child is, is the development. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in Montego Bay, which is the tourism capital, capital of Jamaica. And it is, a growing city, town, city, <laughs> depends on your perspective. 
Um, and so there's certainly been a lot of development. You know, a lot of landscapes have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I would say there's still a healthy respect for the environment in, 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 a, in a certain way. I mean, a lot of the things happen on the coast and in a good way we're able to like sort of leave the center of the island alone and that's where the forests are and, and so on. Um, some of it does get competes with agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I would say that um, it really is the development mm-hmm. where I've seen changes. Um, and then what I know, maybe I haven't seen this myself, but definitely fishing. Fishing, okay. overfishing and pollution is a major one. I mean, the size of the fish that you would get you get now are much smaller than the fish that you would have gotten before. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of the diving, I mean, I've been able to see it more from an island to island comparison that our reefs in Jamaica, you know, a lot of them on the North Coast are really in bad condition Mm -hmm. um, compared to like when I went diving in Turks and Caicos, I was like, oh my God, (laughs) I didn't even like, when you see it on TV, you're like, oh, they must have enhanced that, you know, some extra colors there and so on. And then that was like, ooh, Okay, so we need to do a lot better here with mm. that. Yeah. You mentioned sort of at the, the top of the interview there that um, there's some coral restoration projects um, that you do. Is how, how did, Could you tell us a little bit about how they're going and where they're sort of located? Absolutely. So we, we are doing it here in Jamaica with the Marine Sanctuary. So that team also conducts that research mm-hmm. and, and executes that project. Um, and then I mentioned the project in St. Lucia yeah. where we worked with that Claire Caribbean and... Um, essentially, these are underwater nurseries. Mm-hmm. They're artificial trees made out of PVC pipe. They look like Christmas tree um, <laughs> with the, the pipes kind of set and um, perpendicular to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you essentially go, you collect fragments of coral. We typically focus on two different species, two fast-growing species mm-hmm. that um, are resilient and, and reef building um, branching corals mm-hmm. so they are then tied on essentially yeah tied with um, onto the trees and after about nine months they reach a size uh, where they're ready to be replanted or outplanted onto the reef again and so you then choose an area a where the conditions are good for for the growth but also of course where you want to continue to build the reef mm-hmm. um, and you pick a spot, you clear it off, you know, clear off the algae, and sure it can stick. And you can use different methods. Sometimes some of the corals you can actually just drop or tie them. Um, but of course, if with increased wave action, they could blow away. But you can also use an underwater epoxy or cement, get them on there, and they grow. Nice, yeah. so awesome. So it's like a little, a uh, little nursery underwater. That's so yeah. cute. That sounds lovely. <laughs> it is, and it's really fun. And what we've been able to do is. Uh, create and sort of develop a sustainable financing mechanism where Mm. we're introducing our guests to the program. So this was something that was being done with, you know, a team of community members and teaching them how to do the method and and supporting that financially. And so the goal, which has sort of been COVID um, (laughs) affected, (laughs) was to introduce this to our guests. And so we've worked with Patty to create a specialty course and Essentially, you can come to visit St. Lucia, sign up for this dive, and go and plant your own coral. That's amazing. That is going to be so popular. Everybody who's listening to this podcast episode can go and do that, please. (laughs) Go to St. Lucia and plant your coral. You don't even have to stay at Sandals, just... (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. little plug in there. I mean, it's like, it's almost like when people can buy a star or something crazy, but actually, like... You can actually see yeah, what you're doing. Yeah, you at least get a general map of where your coral is so that if you want to return and see how it's doing. That's yeah. incredible. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to do it. <laughs> just, yeah. Just hit me up. I will do. Oh, that kind of answer. I was going to ask if there's some like new exciting ideas that you can tell us about, but I think you've just done that. <laughs> um, so I guess sort of my, my final... Um, positive look into the future would be sort of what would you see as the ideal future for Jamaica and the Caribbean region in general? Um, yeah, as sort of like 
a way forward in the next sort of five, ten years or however many yeah. years? Yeah, um, we spoke a little bit about education and mm-hmm. I think that creating a little army of environmental stewards yeah. is the best way forward for any of the issues that we face. I mean, we're not going to be able to erase any of the issues, mm-hmm. but we certainly have to adapt to them, um, to the changes, as well as mitigate um, the, the negative effects of some of these um, issues. Um, but if we have conscious, um, woke <laughs> people um, who, no matter what industry they're in, have an appreciation for an understanding of the environment and how it affects them, how it affects their work, how it's going to affect their children, and yeah, how how everyday life is really intertwined. You, you can't really escape it. Mm-hmm. Um, then I think that the future will be bright. Um, and so that's where the hope comes from for me, the, the education and, and, and having that change, having that mindset change. Um, yeah, and then otherwise, I mean, definitely for the marine space, I think we we have to work with our governments to figure out a better balance when mm. it comes to, um, you know, development and, and you know, the, the sort of more economic aspects of, of, of life. And because aside from Mother Nature making the world go around, I think money, mm, <laughs> money yeah. is a little bit too, and that's, that's the battle there. I mean, um, you know, ecotourism has to to take a, a bigger star role in, in what we do. So mm-hmm. that's what I would say, education um, being the, the key to having that hope. That's lovely. I love those words to sort of end my serious questions on. Yeah. Nice little ray of hope for the future. Um, now, I have two more questions for you, um, which I have to ask everybody. Um, which I give people beforehand to have a little think about because they can prove a bit difficult. Um, So the first one is if you could have any animal adaptation, what would it be and why? Okay, so here's, this was, I know I need to answer and give you one answer. (laughs) And I would say that right now, I would probably choose gills for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, Being able to swim and live and breathe on the water, I think would be amazing. Um, but that being said, I also um, have a very big love for birds and I think wings would also be equally awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I would just have to say gills for now, but maybe I would change my mind later. In the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a choice, I would be like half and half. <laughs> yeah. 50 years this, 50 years that. Very popular choices for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my final question, and I love asking people this one, um, is who would play you in a movie of your life? Yeah, I had to think about this one. And for me, the obvious answer was my sister. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Like, nobody knows my sister, so <laughs> it's not really relevant. Um, yeah, so definitely. So in place of her, but I think she, she would represent me well because A, she knows me. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very different. We have very different personalities, but um, I think we have a healthy understanding of each other. And I think that, you know, she sort of understands what I stand for, what I believe mm-hmm. in, and, and could also put the same sort of energy that I put into things. Um, she did into justice. It. But otherwise, I think I would choose somebody like... Um, Kiki Palmer, just because she has such like a bubbly mm-hmm. and energetic personality, and yeah. I think that would help to represent me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, people have said before, like they pick people whose values align with like their values and stuff, which is like what you sort of said about there with your sister. <laughs> I love that answer. Someone picked themselves, so you can pick any oh. anyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll play me. I'll write the whole thing. I'll do the theme tune. All of it. <laughs> oh well, that that wraps up my my formal questions for you. Um, so thank you how's, so much. How's the podcasting going? Um, yeah, it's been going going well. Um, it's one of those things where sort of I have to make sure I keep momentum with it. When I'm sort of contacting people. I might get a bit nervous, but then like. Once I get in contact and the interview starts, I'm like, this is great. Let's do more of this. So, yeah. I was that you reached out to me. So, yeah. I mean, I know it's the social media thing. And, like, it's there and you sort of see people in passing and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember when the X, Y, and Z. And, 
but you know for you to reach out it, it's it's very nice especially in this time when it's so isolating and, and mm-hmm. you know being home and not really seeing people and so it's been great to to talk with you today oh good i'm so glad oh that's it's gonna be keep a big smile on my face all day <laughs> oh thank you so much for for taking the time to to talk to me and yeah um everything that you just explained and said about all of the work that you're doing with the Sandals Foundation sounds incredible so I can imagine that people will be so excited and interested to listen um so yeah thank you so so much thank you yay Thank you all for joining me once again on another episode of Turn on the Light. And thank you so much to Binky for speaking to us there. Um, A couple of bits I forgot to mention in the interview um, is that you can follow the Sandals Foundation um, on Instagram and Twitter at SandalsFDN. So at Sandals Foundation Foundation, um, on Instagram and Twitter, which I will put in the show notes for you. Um, Sandals Foundation on Facebook as well. Um, And you can check out all the good work that they do at sandalsfoundation.org, their dedicated website. Um, And on the Instagram there, I did spot Binky in a couple of videos. (laughs) So you can go and check those out and follow the wonderful work that they do. Um, And just before we go, I wanted to just pop in a quick another positive news story um, because this one comes directly from Jamaica. Um, they've become the first Caribbean nation to submit a much tougher climate plan to the UN. Um, the Only the 11th country worldwide to have done this. Um, as we discussed with Binky, Jamaica is of course more at risk um, of more intense hurricanes, sea level rise and drying trends across much of the island. Um, Therefore, the country has submitted a tougher climate action plan under the Paris Agreement, adding targets for forestry and stepping up curbs on greenhouse gas emissions from energy. Um, forests cover over 50% of the island. Um, so go Jamaica! Woohoo! Um, which sort of, yeah, leads me on to another point. I love how all of these things come together. You know, it just goes to show that the world is so intrinsically interlinked um, and everything that we do you can find six degrees of separation um where it has a knock-on effect on something else um yeah obviously talking about the echo parakeet and all of the techniques that it's gone through the captive breeding and such to bring it to a point where it's at today and how this has also happened with other species and and can work on other other uh, other islands with other island populations um yeah it all everything comes full circle everything informs everything else um which is you know part of my motivation for keeping up this podcast if if one person listens to this and takes something away from it and passes that knowledge on um to at least one other person then you know what an amazing thing that is um so thank you again if you've made it this far um and yeah have a wonderful couple of weeks i'm actually on holiday next week um doing anything much just seeing family who i haven't seen in about five months um so that's incredibly exciting um but yes as always you can reach me on instagram at turn on the light underscore pod um on twitter at saving species and the email address is turn on the light pod at gmail.com please do rate and review if you're listening on itunes it's the best way to spread the word um and yeah i hope you have enjoyed today's episode Happy listening, people. Take care. Bye-bye. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light. Mm-hmm.